It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back inside the Wheelhouse Podcast. We have reached... Hard to believe it, Jerry. Episode number 50, the Jamie Moyer episode of The Wheelhouse. Jerry, I'm uh, inside our team hotel in the Metroplex in Dallas-Fort Worth. You are back inside a, a very lavish conference room. Are you in the Alvin Davis conference room? Do I understand that correctly, Jerry? You do. The lavishly decorated Mr. Mariner Alvin Davis room. Very nice. Well, remember, you can always follow us uh, wherever you find your podcast. We appreciate you tuning in our way. You can subscribe via the Apple Podcast Store or Stitcher or anywhere else. I'm Aaron Goldsmith, Mariners broadcaster, Jared Apoto, Mariners general manager, of course, Colin O'Keefe, the brainchild of the podcast and our producer. And Jerry, before we get to uh, the homestand that was and the road trip that is for the Mariners, as sometimes this podcast just has really great timing, and today is a fantastic example of that. Literally moments ago, the Mariners announcing that a deal has been struck uh, with the Atlanta Braves. Please tell us about the details of some arms being swapped between the two clubs. Sure. You know, we uh, we picked up left-handed reliever Jesse Biddle. Jesse's 27, a former first-round draft pick, had a really good 2018 for Atlanta, a big lefty 6'5", throws in the mid-90s and gets a lot of ground ball contact. Uh, who's not gotten off to a very good start this year. And he was designated for assignment about a week ago, and we had been in touch with the Braves. They had expressed some interest in Anthony Swarzak earlier in the year. And, you know, this allowed us to to do what is, in essence, get a look-see at a, a younger player who we think fits us moving forward. And we feel it's a better way to spend the innings. And, and it gives Anthony Swarzak an opportunity to go pitch in a winning situation and, and give him an opportunity to play for a team that's a little closer to his zip code in Florida while we do – uh, maybe a little bit more building for not just for 2019, but hopefully for beyond. If Jesse Biddle hits for us, it's it's five years of control moving ahead. And and that means something, especially with left hand bullpen. That's hard to come by, especially with that kind of power. And tell us about Erotis Vizcaino as well. You know, Erotis Viz, he goes by, is is likely not to pitch in 2019. Uh, at best case scenario would be that he returns in, in September of this year. More likely he returns in 2020. And he's a free agent at season's end. He's just 28 years old. He's spent most of the last three years as the on and off closer for the Braves. Really good stuff. You know, unfortunate health history with, with Viz, but... In the end, this is a chance to get to know a guy who may fit for us moving forward, who generally fits what we were looking for in terms of age window. And, you know, the worst case scenario for us is that it's some type of cash offset with what Anthony Swarzak's salary was that gives the Braves some kind of salary relief so that this was effectively trying to invest our money in what we thought was the best way we could to develop our team for both the present and future. 
Okay, so just to be clear, so that everybody's on the same page here, obviously, Biddle, you mentioned five years of control. So for Vizcaino, there is a chance, depending on how his shoulder heals or maybe does not heal at quite the rapid rate that he might like, there is a chance that we don't ever see him in a Mariners uniform then. Uh, you'll see him in a uniform. You just may never see him pitch. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so he's uh, Viz is in the Dominican Republic right now. We're we're probably going to see him here in Seattle in about two weeks and have a chance for our doctors and rehab people to get a, a real sense for where he is. And and again, it's an opportunity to get to know the person and determine you know whether he's a fit here as he enters free agency and gives us a, maybe a, a cheater's view or start and the chance to recruit a guy who may fit us well moving forward. How does this deal come about in terms of the length of time in dealing with the Braves? This is not a, at least to my recent memory, Jerry, a, a common trade partner for you. Uh, can you kind of give us as much as you can, a look kind of behind the curtain as to how all this came down? Uh, you know, I, I have done deals with Alex Anthopoulos before, uh, just not necessarily since he's been with Atlanta. But in this particular case, I generally toss ideas around with Alex pretty frequently. And he's one of the guys that that maybe is most active in the league and talking about your the, the different scenarios where you might be able to pull together a deal. And, you know, they had some bullpen issues right out of the chute this year in Atlanta for a really good young team that has aspirations of, of getting to the postseason. And I think legitimate aspirations, super talented club. And, you know, they stumbled out of the chute with the bullpen. And, and as a result, you know, Alex ever active did contact us in regard to Anthony Swarzak early. And, you know, the conversations were intermittent from, you know, mid-April through where we are today. So over the course of about a month. And then last week when they designated Jesse Biddle for assignment, it, there seemed to be the potential for a matchup here. And we had always discussed the idea that that Vizcaino's salary created an offset for, for Anthony. And I, this worked out well for everybody. We, we save a nominal uh, part, part of our payroll. And more importantly, we invest the money we're spending in, in a young player who we feel like we have a chance to grow with. What will the upcoming days be like for Jesse in terms of his time, timetable, where he is now, when we will be seeing him, uh, Jerry, not only in a Mariners uniform, but possibly pitching in a Mariners uniform? You will see the first of those things tonight. He's uh, <laughs> he uh, had his bags packed. And, you know, just like Swords, when I talked to Swarzy this morning, I said, I hope you didn't unpack last night. But uh, he is flying to San Francisco and will be live for the Braves tonight in, in their game with San Francisco. And, and Jesse was at home with his family in Philadelphia and quickly threw some things in a bag and got on a plane and should arrive in, in Arlington just about game time tonight. And I should have mentioned I failed to at the start of the podcast. We are recording this in advance of game one of the road trip. Monday, May the 20th. Game one coming up tonight from Globe Life Park against the Texas Rangers. Game one of three and game one of a six-game, seven-day road trip. Well, good news there, Jerry. That's all good stuff. We look forward to seeing Jesse Biddle in a Mariners uniform and pitching at some point very soon, you'd have to imagine. Let's talk a little bit about the homestand the Mariners are coming off of. It is kind of the oddest feeling 500 homestand, dare I say, in Mariners franchise history. Uh, what did you make of two very close games, two close wins, as they turned out to be against the A's, and then three rough ones, uh, Saturday night in particular, against the Twins, and but then uh, salvaging the series in some ways on Sunday with behind Kikuchi. 
Yeah, it it was about as uneven a, a six game split as you can possibly have. I I went home last night and that I it it dawned on me at that moment. You know, we just went three and three, and it was the absolute worst three and three homestand I could ever remember. I, because in the middle there, we just got our butts kicked, and there's really no way around it. The you know Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday against Minnesota was about as as humiliating as it's been for us in terms of just not pitching well. We we didn't execute defensively. We we didn't do much to, uh, to force the or push the envelope offensively, and you know, it's just a, the total team losses those days seemed you know, bad. And, and they were, but the, but at the end of the day, we were able to pull one out yesterday. I thought you say was outstanding. Our offense came back to life, especially Edwin and, and the big bomb from Mitch and Bogey, but simple things like seeing JP Crawford chip in making, you know, converting the plays defensively is, is remarkable what happens when you only give them, you know, 27 or even 28 outs instead of 30 or 32. <laughs> so it was, a, I think, a positive end to a very difficult week. And, you know, and frankly, the this last five or six weeks, as we, we've talked about it before in, in recent episodes, our schedule has been a real mother for the last five or six weeks. And, and I think half of our games on the season now have been played against the best teams in baseball. And it'd be good to to get out and have a chance to to breathe a little bit. And, you know, you can't take anybody for granted in this league, but having just played all the first place teams in, in the major leagues over the course of the last month, it, it would be a relief to to have a chance just to, to let it hunt for a little bit. You mentioned Edwin Encarnacion, three straight multiple hit games going into the road trip. That's lifted his average by 35 points. He has... 13 home runs, and you, you never know with power hitters, sometimes that power bat is slow to begin the season, and it comes uh, later once things start to warm up and the home runs come in bunches. But for Encarnacion, you're number one with the Mariners, and we've seen it right out of the gates. This is about, I'd have to imagine, Jerry, uh, as perfect of a scenario for what you'd hope to see for Encarnacion uh, in his new uniform this year. He's been fantastic. He really has. And it's, uh, he's been super consistent. The thing about Edwin, as with, you know, we talked about it a little bit with Vogie, it, it, they are able to maintain their numbers even when they're not getting their hits because they walk. And Edwin's got great strike zone management skills. He's a pro. He, he's as consistent as anybody down there in his approach. And for a guy in his situation who's been in the league as long as he has, I, I thought the most remarkable part of this past homestand, sans the, the flurry at the finish with how well he was swinging the bat, was he's out there on Tuesday taking extra batting practice at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And you know, that's how he's wired. He's, he's here to, to win. He's here to, to lead. I think he leads quietly by example and how he does things. It's uh, he's he's really been refreshing to have around and he has been so clutch in the in the middle of our lineup and and picking up those big runs. The power's always there and he never panics. He's been through it too many times before. You brought up Mitch Hanniger. It is kind of amazing to think that relative to his all star campaign from a year ago, Mitch is having a down start to the season, Jerry, and yet is still on pace for. What do you say? Roughly 30 home runs this season. Uh, 
is this continued to be a situation for Mitch of just fine tuning things with uh, the foul balls and the strikeouts that we're seeing? Because he continues to see about as many pitches, Jerry, as any hitter in the game per plate appearance. It's just a matter of just seeing more strikeouts this year. Yeah, and I think that's probably part of when you see more pitches, you are going to see more strikeouts. And that's one of the things we're seeing in our lineup. When you drive that many pitches per plate appearances, you are going to elevate your strikeout rate. You're just in deeper, many two-strike counts. And Mitch is among the guys who's who's battling that right now. But he is maintaining his productivity. He's he's hitting the ball over the fence. He's he's still running about a 128 or 130 weighted runs created plus or OPS plus. And it's roughly 25, 30% above the league average is, is where he's been for most of the year, despite the fact that over the last month, Mitch really hasn't gotten on track. It's, it's been a bit of a slump for him. And, you know, like any other hitter, he's prone to having a slump. And, and what I think is, is admirable while he's slumped is that he does seem to come up with that big home run. He does seem to come up with that walk when you need it most. And, and he's been able to contribute while he's going through his, his, I guess, slow spell. And we've all seen what happens when Mitch gets hot. When, when Mitch gets hot, it, it, like we've seen with Edwin or with Vogie, they just carry a lineup. And, and we know Mitch can do that and probably will at some point here soon. When you acquired Rowanis Elias and brought him back to the Mariners from that short stay in the grand scheme of things with the Red Sox, I don't think anybody envisioned him having such a presence in the bullpen this year, a bullpen that has had some turbulence in it so far this season. But Rowanis, Jerry, has been in a lot of ways just such a steadying factor. And even we heard Scott say at the beginning of the homestand that the plan uh, in one of those games against the A's was just to get it to Rowanis at the end of the game and just ride him the rest of the way. Uh, how important has Elias been to, to your bullpen over the first uh, two months or so of the season? Oh, he's been huge. And you can really run that back to last year. And this is exactly what we thought when we reacquired him from the Red Sox, was that somewhere in May of 2019, he'd have roughly the same F4 value as Josh Hayden. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> but you know, it, in, in Rowena's case, he, he's been remarkably consistent. We've seen his stuff really take a jump forward as a reliever. And some guys are just comfortable in, in, in certain markets. And I think Roe does a really nice job fitting into our clubhouse. He's a great guy. He works as hard as any pitcher I've been around. He, he really does have a good way about him. And we've seen mid-90s. We've seen a, a real improvement with his changeup, which has become an out pitch. And we're seeing steady progress with a breaking ball that when he rejoined us last year and even in his first go around with the Red Sox was a good but not always consistent pitch and we're seeing more consistency with that curveball in the early part of this season and his confidence is high he's throwing the ball great he's a he's a huge part of what we're doing in that bullpen and really quietly now and we hope Jesse Biddle is the next piece of that but with Rowenis Elias and Connor Sadzik and Brandon Brennan, I think the stuff you've seen in this, the couple of outings that Austin Adams has had since he's been with us, we are putting together some really interesting arms down in that bullpen. And with the pending returns of guys like Sam Tuiviala and, and Hunter Strickland at all, it has a chance to be a really exciting, young, upside bullpen. And quietly, all of the guys I just mentioned 
are having really solid years. We we just haven't been able to pin a a four inning stretch through a game together in a traditional roles system where somebody pitches the sixth, somebody pitches the seventh, somebody pitches the eighth, and somebody pitches the ninth. What we are starting to see develop on our club is maybe multi-inning relievers like you saw from Roe the other night against Oakland, like you saw from Austin Adams in the twin series, like you saw from Connor Sadzik. I think you're going to start seeing, and even Brandon Brennan yesterday against the twins, I think you're going to start seeing Scott and the staff doing that a little bit more frequently is giving these guys the opportunity to run in multiple innings when they're throwing well so that we're not constantly trying to piece together three or four guys, but we're letting one or two guys go ahead and finish a game off because we don't have a traditional closer, but we do have half a dozen guys down there with really electric stuff. And, and if we pick the right moments in time, perhaps we can build what I would call more of a modern reliever. Very interesting. How has those discussions between you, Scott, the rest of the staff, kind of progressed as this season has progressed? Has this been a kind of pivot on the move as this bullpen and this season has uh, developed as it has? Well, I don't, you can look at our, our season, and, and obviously now with, with Swarzy headed to Atlanta, the a lot of our season was spent trying to develop a traditional role system down in the bullpen where you had you know a, a sixth seventh or eighth inning setup guy who's leading it to a closer and and despite the fact that we've got a half a dozen guys with saves I think much of our April you know headed into May was spent trying to feed the game to Anthony Swarzak in the ninth inning and and we were either uneven in our ability to get there or we were uneven in our ability to finish it off once Anthony got in the game so it, the we did come up with a few different ideas for how we might uh, augment that or or change our dynamic, and I, what you saw last year and what I would call the, the the most modern of the current bullpens is maybe what they do in Milwaukee, or what they did in Milwaukee last year and and theoretically into this year with guys like Josh Hader and Corey Knable and and Jeremy Jeffress. They had multiple guys who could contribute toward the tail end of a game for multiple innings. And, and that allowed them to get the most out of some younger guys with really good arms that, that were able to contribute in, in the middle innings. And uh, they did not go into the season in 2016 with a traditional closer. They allowed it to develop and ultimately surfaced with Corey Knable and then they've allowed the bullpen to start developing around this nucleus of three guys who could dominate for stretches of time. And, and you know, we are not shockingly, we're trying to emulate that the best we can. And it's a, it's a good group that we have down there. Like I said, they're big arms and, and we have a few more on the way. We have a host of guys in the minors that throw in the mid to upper nineties. We have uh, a rehabbing Gerson Batista, who's already shown hundred mile an hour fastball and, it, it'll be exciting when we get all these these guys in one place at one time. I'm going to do something completely unprecedented on the podcast, but it is the 50th episode, so we can break some rules. Since this is so on topic, I'm going to jump right ahead to one of our listener questions because at Mariner Muse on Twitter, I wanted to know, Jerry, and you kind of answered it there, but there might be an offshoot. He wants to know, given your history as a former major league reliever, do you have a governing perspective about building a bullpen? Because it seems as though over your time as a GM, you've had distinctly different bullpens. 
but it sounds like kind of based on what you just laid out for us, Jerry, that it depends on the situation. It depends on the cast of characters and the year. Is that fair to say? It really is. And, and there's no way to predict from year to year what it's going to look like, because as we as we know from being around baseball all our lives, the bullpen can be a pretty volatile thing. And uh, I, I spent my entire major league career in the bullpen. I, I've, I feel like it's a, it's a comfortable thing for me to not always be sure what's happening down there. But, you know, when you find the right mix, stick with it. And, you know, I'll revisit last year with when you, when you have that thump at the end of the game to be able to throw Alex Colomay out there in the eighth inning and Eddie Diaz in the ninth, it's, that's a great feeling when you can do that. Um, that gave us some, obviously some staying power in the ability to win one run games. There's this group doesn't really afford us that type of late game certainty or consistency. So we have to look at it through a similar lens to what I just described with the, with the crew and what they did over the course of the last couple of years. And I think they've done a remarkable job of building a dominant bullpen without having had a traditional closer to start with. And, and yet somewhere along the way, they've gotten tremendous bullpen seasons out of Corey Knable and Jeremy Jeffress and Josh Hader. And they've allowed other guys in their pen to, to really rise up because they weren't putting them in pressurized situations night after night. And that's the way we see this group of guys in the 2019 bullpen for the Mariners coming together. And, and we feel like with the group I just mentioned, Brennan and Sadzik and hopefully Biddle now and, and peeling them together with guys like Bautista and Adams, that we are starting to develop a, a bullpen of guys that we can move forward with that hopefully pitch in this modern way. And it really is just it's flashing forward, but it's flashing back. This is the way bullpens were built really for, from the start of bullpens back in the 19. 19- 20s until you know maybe the mid 1980s when when traditional one inning closers were born with with Dennis Eckersley you know right around 1987 I, I, until then it was not uncommon for for this look to happen in a bullpen and and when you looked up at Bruce Suter or Dan Quisenberry or uh, it, they they had their 45 saves, but they were doing it over the course of 100 innings, which was phenomenal. It was even more dramatic in the 60s and 70s. We don't envision having 100 inning relievers running around, <laughs> but there is there is uh, something to be said for allowing these guys to, to throw 30, 40 pitches or go through the order once before you move on to the next guy and not ask them to come back and pitch 85 times in a season. Because having done both of those, thrown you know in 78 games and having thrown almost 100 innings in a season as a reliever, I can tell you which one's harder. It's harder to come back day after day after day and bounce back resilient. And I, and I always had a healthy arm, but that's harder to do than just pick up the multiple innings and help your team win that way. Do we agree that the hundred inning reliever is known as a Yarborough now? <laughs> it is a Yarborough, but they, I mean, there have been so many through the years that he's the answer to all quirky pitching questions, apparently. But uh, it is, you know, there, there was a pitcher in in my era, a guy with the Cincinnati Reds named Scott Sullivan, who was he was good for a hundred a year, and I, he could tack it on. There were guys, you know, back in the in the 80s and 90s, guys like Dwayne Ward, who were, 
I, Dwayne Ward had filthy stuff. It was ridiculous. And he'd throw, you know, 80 to 120 innings a year. And uh, it's, it's probably more effective or more efficient for a club to plan that way than to envision a time where you can peel together three guys with closers ability, which is, you know, frankly, we had that last year. We had guys that we could start running out there that could pitch the ninth inning for anybody. And, and we were pinning them back to back. Most teams don't have that luxury and, and we sure don't this year. So we have to come up with a different way. As we look ahead to the road trip that's beginning tonight in Arlington, obviously Eric Swanson has been optioned back to Tacoma. His rotation spot comes up tomorrow for Scott Service. It's a day game on Wednesday and then an off day. Uh, I'm not expecting you to break any news or tip your hand, but I'm sure that there's been plenty of conversations going on there. Exactly what road, what angle or what lane the Mariners choose to go in right now with uh, currently four starters on the roster and uh, Swanson having just been optioned down. What are some of the thought processes that are going on right now? Well, there really is only one thought process, and it is apropos to episode number 50, the Jamie Moyer session, is we are going to bring in another uh, crafty lefty, and, and we're going to pin Tom Malone. Tommy will will join the rotation uh, for tomorrow's game, and and he's had a really good run for us in Tacoma. He's had a lot of big league success and understands the league as importantly. He understands the division and the ballparks that we're, we're running through this week. Ideally, we, we would not have four lefties in the rotation, but you know the, the world's not always ideal, and all of them are capable in their very own way of, of doing their thing and trust Tom Malone and, and believe that he's, he's prepared to, to take this start and, and move forward with it, and he's here in the right. He pitched very well in Tacoma and what has been a really difficult environment. So, you know, we, we wanted Swanee to go back and refocus on, on his secondary weapons and making better quality pitches with his fastball. Uh, Eric Swanson's got a really good fastball, uh, one of the best fastballs in the league, really, and, and how it plays. We've got to somehow figure out how to, how to refine the secondary pitches or, or even just refine the way we use the fastball. Because when Swanee is up above the strike zone, he is overpowering with the, with the fastball he has. And, and somewhere along the way, especially these last two outings he had had in Boston and in Minnesota, he got stuck in the middle. And you know when Eric gets stuck in the middle in terms of command, that's a bad place to be. It's uh, being up or being down is, is good. Being stuck in the middle is, is usually loud. And that's what happened. Is the thought for Swanson right now that this is a kind of a quick reboot with Tacoma? Is it a wait and see how it plays out? Is there any timetable at all on a young player like this when you send him back down to get things worked out? No, no timetable. Just want to get it right. You know, uh, Eric wasn't supposed to be in our rotation as quickly as he was, but the injury to Wade pushed him into service, you know, a lot sooner than maybe we would have expected. He only had one start for us in, in Tacoma before we threw him into action. And he's he's thrown less than 100 innings at the AAA level in total, and he's just 25 years old. So, you know, we, we do want to allow him to take a breath and and get back to doing the things that he does that make him good. And, and we also want to be open-minded to how we can help him execute better and, and put him in a position to be as successful as he can be. So, 
there's no real timetable on it. I expect that we'll see him again in the not too distant future. And and when he comes back, uh, my guess is this guy understands who he is. Swanee knows who he is. He's a very mature pitcher. And not unlike a lot of guys that make their their first foray into the big leagues, he got chewed up a little bit there toward the toward the tail end these these past couple of starts. And along the way, he had a lot of highlight moments, two outstanding starts versus the Indians. I thought he showed an overpowering fastball when he's locating it the way that he should locate. And and we saw some really positive things, too. So something to grow with and, and we'll send him to Tacoma. And hopefully the next time he comes back is the last. Jerry, it's hard to imagine, but all-star voting is almost right here in front of us. Uh, we're going to give you a, a, a soapbox right now, a stump to get up on, Jerry. And you can get on any rooftop and shout as loud as you want. Let's let's hear a campaign for a player if you want, since it's your podcast after all, Jerry. I'll give you two, okay? Uh, but let's let's hear the, uh, the selling points, because the Mariners have some guys, of course, who are having some very solid, very good first halves. Let's, let's hear you canvas the neighborhood a little bit for a guy or two. Sure. I, it, there's nothing I like more than hopping on a soapbox and screaming. Uh, the in this particular case, I think it's a it, it's an easy question for me. The guys that stand out most, or you know, particularly the guy that stands out most in reference to the league around us, would be Omar Narvaez. I, I, if I had to make a case for any one of our players, he has been awesome since the the moment he got here. I think he's come a long way in his pitch framing. The defense is showing up. He's he's about league average in his defensive metrics, which is a huge step forward from where he was just a year ago. And the things that Omar has done with the bat have allowed us, I, I think along with Minnesota, the, the most productive catching tandem in the league, along with Tom Murphy. So uh, Omar, he's hitting for average. He's getting on base. He's driving in big runs. I think he's closing in on a career high for home runs. And, and you know, we were just past Memorial Day. So it's, it is it uh, is phenomenal what he's done to start the season. And if I had to send one of our players to the All-Star game, he's the one I would stump for right now. I also think there's a case to be made, and you could do it for one player or the other, for either Daniel Vogelbach or Edwin Encarnacion as as part of the American League DH rotation. It's, you know, with with some injuries there around the league and with it not being a standout season for American League first baseman, I think you could argue that that both players deserve to be in that mix. The productivity, the power, the on-base has been phenomenal. And both guys are running, you know, OPS plus somewhere above 140. And in Vogie's case, he's been somewhere around 160 to 180 all year long. So, you know, those are those are two guys that really stand out. It's hard to believe that you'd be able to get both of them into the action, but I think they're both very deserving. And, and those would be the three guys that I would cite uh, among our, our everyday players. And I think they deserve to be in the and Those are all good, all good guys to, to campaign for. Absolutely. Hey, it also means if you look at the calendar, Jerry, I don't have to tell you this. The draft is uh, quickly approaching week by week. Uh, you don't need to take us too deep into the weeds right now. We know things are still just kind of getting off the ground, although actually we don't know that. It very much, very well could be far more than that at this point already. But uh, what have the draft uh, preparations been like already for you and the rest of the front office? Well, our national meetings kick off in earnest on Wednesday. So you know we have two more days that I would call the calm before the storm and uh, this was the last weekend for regular season, you know, college 
games before the tournament start for us. And we will jump into the John Ellis Pavilion for, for the long haul and start on Wednesday and run through the end of the draft with Scott Hunter, Tom Allison, who oversee our amateur scouting group. And we will run through every player on our board, which is it's going to tally roughly a thousand players, which is it's a phenomenal process. If you ever get the chance to stop in and, and see it, Aaron, it's st- walking in the draft room and listening to, to the discussion on a roughly 950 to 1,000 amateur players and then going through the, the painstaking process of putting them in order on, on how we would pick them is, you know, oftentimes it's exhausting. It, we're in that room for, you know, somewhere between 10 and 12 hours a day. And it can get on you a little bit, but our group has done a great job of delivering as much information as they possibly can. We do a terrific job following what we think are the best prospects in the country the previous summer in order to build up as, as much time with, with the, the best players in the country. And by that, I mean the top 100 or 150 players that will be selected in this draft. We've seen them a ton. We've got a great feel for them. We've met with them privately, and and we've had a chance to spend time with them and get to know the people. And that's why when we go into these drafts, whether it's Logan Gilbert or Kyle Lewis or Evan White or Sam Carlson, I could line them up. We are so comfortable with the people that we're selecting that it gives you great comfort that whatever bumps in the road you're going to run into, you're going to be able to overcome them because of the human being on the other end. You know, Jerry, I have had a chance to come into the Ellis Pavilion and take a look at everything. And for as impressive as the whiteboards and all the magnets and all the tablets were, I got to say the snack spread, Jerry, is what really stayed with me. I mean, it was every it phenomenal. Any carb that you ever want is right there. It's all in the Ellis Pavilion. So I take this as a standing invitation for me to come by anytime. I I just need a little munchie right before we go on the air. That's all. Just something little. (laughs) Wear it out. And and the good people at Centerplate will also bring in some warm snacks at about the 2 o'clock hour to make sure that we can get through that that (laughs) lull in the day. But. I have. Uh, I, I actually said to, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna out our scouting director Scott Hunter here, who's done a phenomenal job since taking over as our scouting job, a scouting director in 2017. I think putting together really good drafts, and last year's draft was exceptionally good. And Scott will come in, and over the course of our time, I can't count the number of toothpicks, <laughs> Lacroix waters, coconut waters, and peppermints. You know, like like Christmas time peppermints that he will go through from Wednesday until the end of the draft. I would say to, to use the term, it could choke a horse would not do it justice. And we, and we actually started saving all the cans, the, the LaCroix cans and, and stacking them up in a pyramid <laughs> and making sure that no one ever cleans his space so that the, the toothpicks and the, the candy wrappers are all uh, strewn across around the computer. And, and when the actual draft starts and we start moving, you know, one minute per pick is, is when it really gets interesting and the peppermints start a fly. And there are so many directions that I am being pulled in right now. But since you brought up toothpicks, Jerry, this is our first toothpick conversation on the podcast. It took us 50 episodes. I don't know if you happen to notice this. The dusty oh, paper. you're right. We've, we've already had uh, darn. Okay, second toothpick conversation. Nicely done, Jerry. Very nicely done. <laughs> we'll call this, this a, one the UL. Okay, Washington. that's where I was second going. Most. 
Malik Smith, in from what I can tell, only his final at bat on Sunday. Maybe it happened before, and I didn't see it. Malik was batting with a toothpick, which gave memories of UL Washington. A, did you notice this? I barely noticed it, and I've got a monitor right in front of me. And I encourage everyone to Google UL Washington and look at his old baseball cards because they're all amazing. And he has a toothpick, and I'm telling you, almost every single one of them. I never saw UL without a toothpick. And it, it, it was while I was watching baseball religiously night after night as a, as a kid. But uh, I did not see Malik sport the toothpick. But I'm fully in support <laughs> if, the, if that toothpick results in hits. <laughs> hey, uh, getting back on a more serious note to the draft preparation, I'm curious. We know, even a fan who haven't been in the Ellis Pavilion, I think most people have a good idea based on how you've described things. And even before your description, I think most people understand the man hours, the manpower, the resources that go into compiling all the information for all 30 teams during a major league draft process. I'm guessing that when you acquired Jared Kelnick during this past offseason, that you revisited the notes that were basically still hot off the press from your draft preparation since he was drafted just months prior to that uh, to re-engage in what your scouts believed about Jared Kelnick. But how about, let's take a guy like Jesse Biddle, right? So who was nine years ago was a first round draft pick that you just acquired today. At what point, Jerry, do the draft notes become obsolete that you stop referring to what, you had on Jesse Biddle almost a decade ago, and you now start referring only on what has happened to him uh, recently in pro ball, not just stuff, of course, the numbers that you can get anywhere, but also the more, uh, the more intangible things that only a scout would be able to see if he was there watching that particular player on any given night. Uh, there, there does come a point where it's probably not as relevant. You know, obviously for us last year or last summer, it was hugely relevant with Jared Kalanick. Uh, we had spent a good deal of time with Jared. We had a great deal of comfort with him and obviously thought a ton of the player. And that our work during the draft season or during his amateur time was critical to our ability to acquire him. I would say the same of the acquisition of Justin Dunn. You know, with with Justin, we we had done so much work on him in the 2016 draft, and, and frankly, if not for the fact that Kyle Lewis fell to our pick at 11, we had had multiple conversations with Justin Dunn's camp about the possibility that he would be our pick there. So it's it's a general comfort level. Again, it's more who the person is than than maybe what you thought of their physical ability coming out of the draft, but. I've also I do subscribe to the school of thought that with especially with the the high school players, if you draft a 17 or 18 year old high school player, you should treat that player like he's an amateur until he's 21 years old. Uh, Put him in a similar situation to the or a similar view him through a similar lens to to the the typical third year college player that you're selecting. And, you know, it's a there is a wide gap. You know, think of how what your life was like at 17 or 18 and then what it might have been like when you were 21 or 22. And so much happens through the course of that 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 part of your life that I think it's we have to be cognizant of not creating expectations, particularly the high school drafts that are too high. And, you know, here we are a couple of years later, and we, we've only seen 
I think three innings of, of Sam Carlson in live competition, but Sam's still not 21 years old. And, you know, there, there's so many positives that, that are still lying ahead for him. If we can just get him back on track and, you know, we, we signed the kids down in the Dominican or, or out of Venezuela when they're 16 years old, so much is going to happen to them that we should view them through a different lens and always lean on what we thought of them as international amateur free agents or as high school players before we, we pass judgment or assess their, their value as professional players, because it's a, it is a long journey. And for the college kid who signs at 21, that journey starts when he's already maturing into a, a, a full grown man. When, when we're signing kids at 16, they're, they're still in the kid phase of their life and, and we need to let them grow up and, and, and mature and understand the pro game. And uh, it, the answer is different for everybody. Everybody has their different pace, but we should always be willing to review that information that we created when they were in the amateur world, uh, at least until they turn 21 years old. Let's talk about some other prospects for the Mariners, some young men in the minors and Note two for all listeners, mariners.com slash blog, a fantastic blog uh, from the corner of Edgar and Dave. Mariners PR has tremendous work on there. Colin has a number of entries as well, including a really good conversation recently with Annie McKay, Mariners Farm Director. So mariners.com slash blog for some prospect profiles uh, throughout the course of each month. Uh, Logan Gilbert, Jerry, we know had the early promotion from West Virginia to high A ball in Modesto. Seven starts combined at those two levels this year, a 175, over 13 strikeouts per nine. Yesterday for the Nuts, 11 punch outs, seven scoreless, only two hits. Logan Gilbert is exceeding even expectations that you'd have for a first round draft pick here. Jerry, what do you think? Oh, based on the numbers you just read and some that you didn't, I mean, it's a, he's striking out roughly 40% of the hitters he faces. He's walking roughly six and a half percent of the, the hitters, which are both exceptional numbers. He's not allowing guys on base. He's given up just two home runs on the season so far. He's sitting in the, in the 93, 94 range. He has touched 97 with his fastball. We're seeing four pitches that are above major league average on a given night. And I'm, on the right night when you see a, a day like yesterday and he's clicking on all four, it's it's filling up the strike zone with real stuff. And I, I've said it before, and going into last year's draft or coming out of the summer of 2017, we went into the 2018 draft season fully believing that Logan Gilbert was the best pitcher in the country. And and you know, he he was awesome in Cape Cod in the summer of 17. And and most people's initial prognostications, he was widely viewed as as a chance to be the one one, you know, the first player picked in the draft. And he went through the spring of 2018 at Stetson, suffering through what would I, what I would call a very volatile or or large variance in his velocity and only after we drafted him and we just stuck with the player he's regardless of whether his velocity was up and down he still led the the country in strikeouts as a college junior showed the ability to miss bats and we stuck with what we thought the the player's quality was and again we we had a great feel for who the human being was and and lo and behold after we signed him we found out he had mono so it's a very good chance that he had been pitching all spring with mononucleosis and and his velocity was was moving up and down as a result of that and you know we felt pretty good about the fact that once we got into the spring would see 
what we had always seen before with Logan Gilbert. And, and lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. We, we started seeing the higher end velocity and, and the real pitch quality that, that had always been there. And he's really taken off. And it, we were all pumped this morning when we saw he was the number one prospect on the Baseball America prospect hot sheet. And, and he's, he's really putting himself on the map with what we think are the, the best prospects in baseball, particularly among starting pitchers. During all your days scouting, Jerry, did you ever step foot onto the campus of Nova Southeastern? I have not, but Nova Southeastern has a, a shocking history for, for putting guys, you know, in and around the big leagues and most notably one of the best hitters in the game today, JD Martinez. And, you know, there have been others. I think Mike Fires went to Nova Miles Southeastern at, uh, off the top. Yeah. My, there's, there are guys that they're all over the map. And I think in, in this instance we we picked up a player who actually broke the all-time record for home runs at, at Nova and it was the record that JD Martinez had set while he was there and uh, Jake Ancia who's catching for us in West Virginia uh, set that record last year and you know it's a he has huge power and, and does a nice job behind the plate and and gives us you know with Cal Raleigh and the the group that I mentioned at the the high levels with Omar and Tom Murphy in the big leagues and what we think is a, a really interesting story developing in AAA with with uh, with Nola who's been tremendous all season long. You know, we're in a pretty good situation in terms of catching depth that we have not seen here for quite a number of years. And Gio, with a seven home runs, five coming in the last nine games, do you think, Jerry, that a prudent draft strategy each year would just to be take just take at least one guy with your top 15 picks from Nova? I mean, it seems like that'd be a good idea. I'm not telling you what to do, Jerry, but it seems like a good idea. It- <laughs> Why wouldn't you? They play in the big leagues. You know, pitch where the fish are. I, I will also say this, because if, if you've never been in a major league draft room, I'm sure that many of our listeners have played fantasy football or fantasy baseball in their time. But but specific to fantasy football, we had and I played for a number of years during the end of my playing career and, and then early after I retired. But during a typical fantasy football draft, you are going to run into that that period of time where somebody is selecting team defenses or kickers, and this widespread panic starts. And it it could be anywhere from the sixth round of the draft to the fifteenth round of your draft. And as soon as somebody selects a kicker or a defense, cold sweats will break out. People will start falling over one another to to get to the the microphone to call out their next pick and pick the kicker or defense for fear that that there will be none when it's their turn. That is what it's like in the draft room when college catchers start going off the board. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this year I think it's going to be a little anticlimactic because I'm, I'm certain that somewhere in the, the – somewhere between the first and the first selection, we will likely see Adley Rushman from Oregon State uh, go off the board pretty early in this draft. But the the usual panic that that takes place when the catchers start going off the board, guys like Jake Antia and, and Cal Raleigh are so hugely valuable because they're polished college players who bring some offensive skill and to to the table, and you can plug them into your system and start building depth. And there aren't very many of them in each draft. It's a it's it's a small number, and we were fortunate last year to grab two of them. and And don't be surprised if when the opportunity comes up this year, we do the same. It's a 
it's always a positive strategy to grab the, the college catching somewhere in the top 10 round. I'm thrilled we're having this conversation, Jerry, because it, it leads us right into <laughs> this week's Stump JD. Jerry, can you tell me one of the two catchers in baseball history who have caught a major league record for no-hitters? Jeff Torborg. That is incorrect. That's incorrect. That's that. That's absolutely correct. Nolan Ryan, Sandy Koufax, Jeff Torborg, and he caught two I feel of like each. I, I feel like your information here is flawed, or I'm. Well, maybe that's I'm overconfident. Jerry, Jerry, that's that's never happened. But the, the, the fact that you are wrong or that I am overconfident, because I can tell you, I have spent many days in my life being overconfident. Uh, uh, no, that my information is flawed. Uh, to my information, Jerry. There have been two catchers who have each caught four no-hitters. Two catchers who have each caught four no-hitters. Yes. All right. I am going to say that if this flawed information is, <laughs> is correct, and Jeff Torborg is not one of them, uh, could it be Could it be four no-hitters is a big that's number. A, that's, sorry, Torborg. Uh, yeah. Tell me about it, man. Yeah. I can. I, Could it? I'll, t- you, I'll give you a hint when you want one, but I feel like you're on. You're on the path. Four no hitters. Yeah. Uh, you know, Torborg. I mean, my first Torborg caught three. Jerry, he, uh, according to my information, he caught Koufax's perfecto. He bought. He caught uh, Bill Singer's no no, and then he caught the first of Nolan's seven no hitters. So very, that's, very good guess, Jerry. That's that's a, awesome. That's a great career. That's awesome. That's a great career, but it's not the record. <laughs> uh, because I'm going to go with the the timeliness of this question, I will throw it out there and say, could it be Josh Fegley? Because he just caught Mike Fires? That's a good thought. No, I'll tell you this much, Jerry. One of these guys was in a Mariner's uniform not that long ago. One of these guys was in a Mariner's uniform. Carlos Chutruiz. That's exactly right, Jerry. Ah, there's that was an awesome pitching staff he worked with in Philadelphia with Doc Holliday and Cole Hamels and Cliff Lee. It's a, that's that's a great group. He caught two from Holiday, including one in the postseason uh, back in 2010, I believe, and then he caught one from Hamels and a combined no hitter that featured Hamels. Uh, the other catcher, Jerry, was Jason Veritek, also caught four no hitters. Wow. I, I did not know that. Did you know, and I'll throw a, did you know, did you know, because this was not widely advertised at the time that when we went through our managerial search in the fall of 2015, that Jason Veritek was one of the candidates with whom we sat down to meet. Really? How'd that go? For, uh, uh, great. Tech's an awesome guy. I had crossed paths with him on, on two occasions with the Red Sox. He's got a great head for the game. And obviously he had connections many, many years back here with the Mariners as a former draft pick of the club, but made his hay with, with the Red Sox. I would not be shocked if Jason Veritek winds up as a major league manager somewhere along the way and, and deservedly so. He's got a good head for the game and, and a really good presence and leadership skills. I believe, if we're going to take this to an even more ridiculous level, I believe Veritek, am I right here, is one of three former Golden Spikes award winners to be drafted by the Mariners. Zanino was a Golden Spikes guy, wasn't he? 
He was. That, Mike Zanino and Kyle. Yeah. Lewis. Okay. I think that's it. All right. So look what we've done. Jerry, look what we've done here. This is amazing. It would start, it all started with uh, f- a phony accusations of Jeff Torborg. Uh, <laughs> and it's taken us into the most ridiculous uh, corners of worthless trivia, which is, I think, uh, a very big element of the podcast. So thank you for indulging us here. I, to, worthless trivia is effectively called my free time. This is a, you know, it's all I do is indulge in worthless trivia when I'm down doing nothing. Can I tell you, uh, Saturday night, Jerry, on the broadcast, that was what worthless trivia was because we had a lot of it thrown uh, out on the air on Saturday night at T-Mobile Park, including, let's see, we got into a run fairly, Jerry, the only player, I be- I'm pretty sure, I'll admit this, I'm pretty sure the only player ever to be an all-star from both Canadian teams. I, I believe that is correct. And who actually had, if you look at Ron Fairley's career, he had a, a really good career that lasted roughly forever. Yeah, it did. You're right. Uh, it was amazing. He, he, I, I think every year of my childhood, there was a Ron Fairley baseball card somewhere between you know, <laughs> 1970 and 1980, early 80s. But, uh, you know, funny, in the, in the world of time killers during Saturday night's epic four-hour, uh, what I would call carnage. It, I was sitting in the box in, in a dimly lit box with my my uh, box mate or sweet mate, Roger Hansen. And I spent most of the middle to latter part of the game on the phone. And I, I guess I had come to find out post-game, I, I rode the elevator down with the Twins broadcast crew. Among the Twins broadcast crew is currently Latroy Hawkins, who... Uh, Latroy was the, oddly enough, was the very first player I ever signed as a free agent. What? As a general manager. And uh, yeah, I, I signed Latroy as a free agent in, in uh, the winter of 2011 when I was with the Angels and, and signed a one year deal with Latroy, who is an awesome guy, a tremendous human being, got, had a long and wonderful career. But I was riding the elevator down with Latroy, and he said, "We had you on the on the broadcast. We kept flashing over you in the box on the telephone, and you know the guys on the in the truck in my ear were were joking around that you were making a trade." And I said, "No, we weren't making a trade. We're we're on the phone trying to figure out how we can get healthy pitchers here to to augment the staff for tomorrow because we just charged through a couple on the staff." And and Latroy said, "I told him that's what was happening." So. Uh, Hopefully the, the the end of this this run that we've been on and really tumultuous run with with uneven play, it it starts fresh today and we're able to reset and get out and, and get some air in our sails with coming off a pretty good and and generally uncomplicated win in yesterday's game. We'll get to one more listener question today. This one comes via email from Rob. Remember, you can always email the show, the wheelhouse at mariners.com. Jerry a little earlier in the, in the podcast today, you touched on Justin Dunn. Last I saw, maybe he's had one more start since then. He had a beauty against the Springfield Cardinals. Dunn is pitching for the Mariners, AA affiliate in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, what have you made so far of, of his season uh, to this date, and how impressed have you been with his overall performance? Very impressed. And we were very impressed in spring training. Justin, you know, he there were questions coming out of the draft whether Justin was going to be a starter or a reliever. And, you know, what we have seen is we've seen a fastball that sits 92 to 94. He touches 96. We have seen a breaking ball that is well above 
major league average. And, you know, what we've watched over the course of his last eh, three or four starts is he is starting to lock in command wise with that breaking ball. And uh, top of my head, he's he's running out of fielding independent ERA somewhere around two six. He is he is running out a strikeout rate in the Texas League, which is a, a really tough league to pitch in. But he's running out about twelve and a half uh, strikeouts per nine against something in the neighborhood of about two and a half walks per nine, and in a league that that should be a, a strong assignment for him. He's, he's been really good. And he's you now in what is a really prospect laden team in Arkansas that, that has built up a, a, the start to a nice season. I think they have a five and a half game lead and, and, in their division and, and many of our top 30 prospects are playing on that club. Justin has stood out in the early going. We've seen three quality pitches. The changeup has come a long, long way. I, I couldn't be happier, particularly with the way he's controlling the strike zone. The the fact that he is striking them out and he is not walking them. It's just as simple as that. That's his ticket to being a big league starter because all the pitches are there. The makeup is there. He's a really cerebral guy who I would count as one of the the pleasant developments of our spring training was watching how he goes about his craft and he, he takes it very seriously. He's very prepared. He thinks through it. He's very smart and we're looking for him to, to continue to do what he's doing and, and make it really interesting. And as we see guys like Justin, like Logan Gilbert, like Justice Sheffield and Eric Swanson join up with the Marco Gonzalez, the, the Yusei Kikuchis, the, what we've got going on in pitching development is so much fun to be around right now. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Good stuff there. Hey, the Mariners come back to town a week from today on the 27th. Now, Friday, May 31st is our first fireworks night of the season. There's a Star Wars themed fireworks night. The next day, Saturday, June the 1st, crazy to think June will be here already, Seattle Supersonics 40th anniversary championship celebration. 40 years to the day, by the way, when the Supersonics hoisted the trophy. So a lot of good stuff coming up on the homestand, a lengthy homestand for the Mariners. The first six games on the road over the course of this week. Jerry, as always, we really appreciate the time. I look forward to uh, running into you at the snack line uh, coming up in the weeks ahead of the Ellis Pavilion. Thanks so much, my friend. <laughs> All right, Aaron. I look forward to it. this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can conquer it i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road any road the steeper the better because my all-new santa fe is available with h-track all-wheel drive so i can hit the trail without a worry in the world Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.